Welcome to Gudao Jingxing, Walking the Timeless Way, a podcast that digs deeply into ancient Taoist texts to uncover their timeless wisdom and help us apply them to today's chaotic world. I'm Ian Felton, a practicing psychotherapist, and I'm joined by my co-host, executive coach David Wong. Good morning, David. Good morning, Ian. Merry Christmas. Yeah, Merry Christmas. We we happen to land on the holiday this year, and so it's it's nice seeing you on on Christmas morning. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's a very uh, you know special to record our po- podcast on this you know uh, year of uh, celebration. Yeah. Yeah, and and so we're we're just going to kind of stick to our format, even though we're on Christmas, we're, we're scheduled to do chapter 10 of Tao Te Ching today. And so we're, we're going to go ahead and, and, and do that. And I'm wondering if you would be willing to read us chapter 10, first in Chinese, and then we'll do a translation. Okay, sure. Chai 生之畜之,生而不有,为而不是,长而不宰,是为玄德。This mm. yeah, is a little bit longer of a chapter compared to the other chapters in, yes. in the book. And there's some of the concepts that from what you read that we'll, we'll want to explore a little bit in depth today and and we'll get to that i'm going to read a, a translation for chapter 10 from this is one of my favorite translations it, it's an older book called the wisdom of laozi and it's um got a lot of nice commentary and and generally the translations i find are are really nice too so i'm going to use it today mm-hmm. and the title that was given to this chapter is Embracing the One. In embracing the One with your soul, can you never forsake Tao? In controlling your vital force to achieve gentleness, can you become like the newborn child? In cleansing and purifying your mystic vision, can you strive after perfection? In loving the people and governing the kingdom, can you rule without interference? In opening and shutting the gate of heaven, can you play the part of the female? In comprehending all knowledge, can you renounce the mind? To give birth, to nourish, to give birth without taking possession, to act without appropriation, to be chief among men without managing them, this is the mystic virtue. What's your reaction to 
that particular translation things you like things you didn't like yeah i think uh overall i think it's a pretty good translation okay yeah because some of the translation is either getting too literal that you yeah. find it hard to kind of relate to the you know the meaning of it or too uh you know carried away by the translator's own thinking that you lose you're not really faithful to you know Lao's thoughts so yeah, this but, is a good combination okay good yeah both both of those conditions that you described um i think it just it takes a lot of the magic away from the book and and both of those things the project the author projecting what they want lautsa to mean and people who maybe they're not thinking about the chinese language or the origin of what it, the meanings might be and, and getting too literal both both of those are problems when it comes to translating so glad you found this one to be be pretty good yeah so there's uh, another translation that I like to use sometimes and it's by Red Pine and the line that he how he translates it as can you light the world without knowledge and in the translation that I read it says um in comprehending all knowledge can you renounce the mind that's kind of the the equivalent um what do you think it means to light the world without knowledge hmm well first of all you know when we think about light uh, you know the light is really i feel is the source of life because it just you know gives energy warmth and brightness you know to our world so to light the world uh really means like to i think it has two dimensions one is to see the world or to navigate the world from a mm. you know a a, a men, you know co- cognitive perspective right to mm. um and then to light the world also to do some good i think to bring some benefits to the world so those are the two things i see when we uh you know when we light the world like especially you know during the christmas time now you know we hear a lot you know like the, there's the you know star or you know the, there are lights everywhere you know symbol, symbolizing uh you know uh you know um god in us right mm. to uh shine in the darkness so Yeah, I like I really love the idea of shining light in the darkness that uh, we we think about our condition as humans and how we don't know why we exist and and we don't know what happens after death and and so by definition our entire lives are shrouded in that darkness that, that we can't escape but how do we bring some light into this human condition that we're all trapped in that there's no uh, escape from and mm. there's this uh, notion of 
Ulger and in this chapter, which if, if you translated it literally, which now we're, we're talking about the problem that you mentioned with, with literal translations of, of Chinese, mm-hmm. if you just translated Wujur, it, it would mean to not have any knowledge or to be ignorant. But we don't really think Lao Tzu means that. What do you think Lao Tzu means? Or, or what does, can you talk a little bit about Wujur and other Chinese words that start with Wu, which is basically mm. a, an, an antonym? Um, and and how we can maybe think about those to help us understand Tao Te Ching better and Lao Tzu better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Wu is a very interesting word in Chinese. I think it uh, the basic meaning is uh, is some type of negation, right? Mm-hmm. Is the opposite of something. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think in a lot of the Taoist context, Wu, uh, you know, it's not, let's say, um, Wu Wei, right? Wu Wei is not like not doing anything, but not uh, overdoing or uh, striving. So that's another example. So Wu Zhi, I think in this con- uh, in this context, I don't think it's, you know, is Lao Tzu is teaching us to be ignorant, mm-hmm. but not over relying on our the knowledge that we know it. But usually, the knowledge, uh, you know, if we think about uh, another great uh, spiritual leader like uh, Krishna Murti, he said, "Not when you think about it, knowledge is always about the past. Knowledge mm-hmm. is partial, right?" Mm-hmm. So knowledge by definition is partial. So I think the same thing here, Lao Tzu is teaching us that don't be overconfident about the knowledge we have, right? Uh, mm-hmm. You know, uh, I think it's to, um, it's to recognize the limit of knowledge and also be comfortable with not knowing. Yeah, just like, you know, I think even in the basic term, uh, Wu and Yu, uh, Dao comes from Wu, but that Wu doesn't mean like nothing, no. right? It, it has, it's just like uh, undifferentiated. It's everything contained in that depth of uh, what you call it, the, the Wu. Uh, Wu actually has everything in it instead yes. of nothing. Yeah, and, and and Lao Tzu describes that dark mystery, that Wu. I mean, really, I think you're referencing the same thing, that the Wu the, the that has everything in it, it's dark, we can't see it, we can't penetrate into it. And, and he also describes that as like the mysterious virtue mm-hmm. um, in embracing the female. Why do you think... He chooses that condition as as female versus male. Um, because female gives birth to everything. Mm. I think is the the yeah. I think it's the a metaphor that reminds people like. Um, 
where life comes from. Mm. You know, it's almost like the the womb, you know, of the universe. Yeah, and and so where I'm going with this is that in our society, we we kind of equate freedom with rights that are, that are about <clears throat> possession, like private property rights, parental rights. Ownership is a big part of how our society is set up when it comes to, to freedom. But Lao Tzu really is talking about giving birth to things and not possessing them. Why do you think that's important or, or why do you think Lao Tzu sees that as important? Uh, it seems like the we just talked about wu and yo. Uh, yo means to possess, right? To have uh, mm -hmm. in uh, in one of the Chinese uh, meanings. So it seems like this the, the society we living in uh, doesn't seem to emphasize wu, more mm -hmm. emphasize yo. You know what do you have? You know mm -hmm. what kind of car do you have? What kind of house do you have? What's your you job? Know, yeah, what is your job? Yeah, and so on and so forth. Um, so that's kind of the the overarching values of our society. Um, it seems to me that to some extent, um, I think our freedom uh, depend on having some resources to satisfy our needs. If we don't, then I don't think we can have the freedom to act because we worry about hunger and, you know, starvation. You know, we worry about, you know, death, right? So I think to some extent of freedom, um, to in order to gain freedom, you have to, you know, according to that, Maslow in a hierarchy of needs, you have to have some some basic things. But beyond that, that having too much of a having become a burden. So we, you know, arrive at a point of diminishing return. And then, you know, we have more worries, you know, we work so hard to get some more Then, in ironically, or paradoxically, our freedom is hindered or uh, jeopardized. Yeah, and I, I I agree completely. And and also thinking about our culture's equation with with freedom, with with private property rights, and and mm -hmm. that sort of thing. That it does make sense within the context of reacting to a tyrannical government that is trying to make people serfs or, you know, really oppress everyone. But Lao Tzu also talks about that too. And, and saying, you know, that the, the government should really leave people alone. And so there's that relationship there too, where, if the government isn't trying to possess 
their citizens, then that mm-hmm. also frees up the citizens to not feel like they have to possess so much or or kind of equate freedom with how much you possess. What do you what's your reaction to that? I think, unfortunately, uh, the I, I mean, the tyrannical government is the is the most extreme, right? It's it, it tries to control every detail of people's lives, to exploit them, to control them. Uh, I almost think that every government or government of any forms have that tendency in the name of governance or sometimes even in, in the name of protecting people, they are exercising the power to control. So in that sense, I don't think any governments on this planet are really uh, behaving in accordance to, uh, you know, uh, you know, with heaven's ways. Mm-hmm. But when you look at uh, heaven's ways, yes, they are creating, they are uh, nurturing without possessing. Yeah, and, and can you think of a government, like a civilization that where there's a pretty good historical record of, of more following what Lao Tzu might call heaven's way or the way of heaven? Uh, not, I mean, not really uh, by uh, Lao Tzu's standard, but relatively, I would say um, the United States mm. at its founding, uh, the founding fathers, you know, learning from the history of the old world, uh, mm. and also inspired by the Enlightenment thinkers, they try their best to, you know, understand the the human nature and uh, and uh, use you know some structure structural design to, you know, create the safeguard or just create a. Ba- checks and balances so that people have some breathing room to pursue, uh, you know, their individual needs and interest, but at the same time create a, um, you know, a, a, a union. You know, they, they are aiming to create a perfect union, but as we can see today, it's still a an aspiration. Yeah, and so that that's try to connect that back to some of these notions that with concepts that start with Wu. And if, if we had a government that leaned more into, you know, a, a, a Wu kind of hands off kind of government, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. how, how does that benefit people? Like in, in the U S for example, you were talking about, how our, our constitution does seem to lean pretty closely toward these virtues, but in practice, it's a lot harder to do. What do you think maybe would be some things that could change in how our, our modern and how the government in 2022, whether that's on the federal level or the state level, 
could move toward more toward Lao kind of wool type of concepts when it comes to to governing, not governing, for example. I see. Um, While still keeping a union. Yeah, that's a great question. It seems to me that uh, the precondition for moving toward in that direction has something to do with fear, don't mm. you think? Uh, fear of common people, and of course, the fear that usually upon which the government is trying to hold or exercise their power. Mm. Right? If people are fearful and really think that, oh gosh, you know, if we, we, we give more freedom to the people, you know, we, the, the government does less, it will be chaos. I think that fear then gives rise to, you know, the rationalization that we want to have a government, you know, which can, is, which is powerful enough to control everybody. So that's the, mm-hmm. I think that's the kind of the human dichotomy. You know, as long as we, uh, so uh, I think our evolution probably has a lot to do with, you know, the psychology of fear in some way. Mm-hmm. Um, going back to that kind of first part of this chapter of the theme being embracing Tao. So mm-hmm. to embrace, we, we don't embrace people typically that we don't trust. We don't embrace things that we're afraid of. Mm-hmm. And and so it, it sounds like what you're saying is, is that it's that fear that gets in the way of us really embracing the type of mysterious virtue that, that Lao Tzu talks about both at the individual level, but also at the political level as well, in the governing level. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because um, we have to understand the, you know, origin of that fear. Uh, you know, recently, you know, last time we talked about a book you highly recommend. So I uh, did a lot of, uh, you know, looking into it, a, mm. you know, Ernest Becker's, you know, mm. uh, denials of, of death. Mm. I think uh, one of the key observations there is we have, as a humans, you know, part of the human condition, you know, we have a, a dualistic nature. We are both, you know, and, you know, a, a physical a, a creature, physical animal, but also a symbolic animal. Mm. I think those two things um, sometimes, you know, give rise to a lot of the anxieties and and fears. And and Lao Tzu addresses this in this chapter when he's talking about controlling the breath and making our breath gentle, being like a child, and obviously children they're not nearly as preoccupied with mm-hmm. all of this death anxiety that adults are. Can, can you relate what you're talking about us being symbolic animals to also this part in this chapter about 
being like a child, controlling your breath, making it gentle? Um, in terms of a child, uh, you know, I was wondering sometimes uh, at some stage, their fear didn't, uh, if I remember cor correctly from that book, at a certain age, maybe less than five, five years old, I think, uh, you know, the, the baby child, the baby, you know, according to Lao Tzu, uh, you know, it's probably fearless, right? So because there's no the one. Yeah, yeah. I think it's part of the one for some reason. I think that's why, you know, he can breathe that way, that gentle, but firmly with vitality. I think then, you know, as a child grows, the baby grows, and then the fear kicks in, right? Then there's all these, you know, according to Floyd, you know, there's all these psychological, you know, problems, right? Mm -hmm. The Defenses you know, from our, our developmental history. Yeah, yeah, at different stages. So that's a really interesting, I think, can we, um, as human beings, as knowing human beings, uh, in what way uh, can we return to that state or can we return, uh, is it possible to return to that state? Uh, you know, right now, you know, there's a lot of, move, uh, there's a lot of, uh, uh, there are a lot of people who are practicing mindfulness, right? Mm -hmm. You know, part important part of the mindfulness is, you know, that breathing technique. Mm -hmm. So biologically, I think it does help us, you know, to be more gentle or to, you know, to, to get to that state. It may be take a long time to, for the human species to, To, to be like that baby, maybe, maybe, maybe it's possible. What do you think? Well, I think that there's a real truth in it. And if you think about when people, when conflict arises, what's the first thing that happens? Pe people's breath increases. Yeah. They start, you know, shouting. And, you know, obviously if you're shouting and yelling, you don't have a gentle breath. You don't have that sort of ease with what's happening. And so even just looking at how much conflict, just human conflict that creates a life that, you know, it, it, it creates more darkness. It kind of diminishes the light that we talked about earlier in the chapter it does make sense that if we were really cultivating from an early age that type of psychological training, breath training, it's really about helping people to keep their cool, stay connected mm -hmm. with each other, not make a big deal about things, conflict resolution. It all ties in to that kind of breath work and it seems like, I don't, I'm not suggesting that 
civilizations in, in general were more cultivated in, in this way, but a lot of more ancient traditions seem to do a lot more focusing on the breath. And now it's modern psychology that's now trying to kind of sit on their um, seat of uh, expertise and saying, yes, this is really important and we've studied it and researched it and, and it's true. And it's like, okay, guys, sure. But like people thousands of years ago were saying this. And so you're not really contributing that much new to the discussion. But why do you think it is that these ancient ways of thinking were so far ahead of our modern technological societies where somewhere this kind of got lost and now it's being rediscovered. What do you think it was about the nature of the times then that people were able to figure this out so much more intuitively where it, it takes re research institutions and studies and all this stuff to give it the stamp of approval now and see, and people seem to still really struggle with making it a practice. Mm. Uh, first of all, do you think sometimes, you know, with a lot, like a lot of other things too, uh, when we only start to lose it, then we realize, you know, something has some value, mm -hmm. you know, it's through the, the kind of the the wisdom of the hindsight. So what what you're saying seems to me like, uh, you know, maybe for a long period of human history, uh, you know, we we kind of take it for granted. We didn't we didn't feel like oh, you know, that is so important. But then as a society moves, you know, sort of progresses we don't have that anymore or we have very little then you know suddenly all these scholars or researchers start to realize oh that is important i mean it's just like somebody's health don't you think like we take our body for granted and then suddenly this body just breaks down and then we say oh that is the really the foundation you know without that body you know we cannot do much right so that, that's, I mean, my first reaction to what you're saying. Um, mm -hmm. The other thing might be uh, that during the ancient days, uh, people in general, they are close to nature or close to the fundamentals because that meaning-creating animal hasn't created much right? Things are simple. So nowadays, we have all these symbols, noise, you know, whatever you call it, you know, ideologies, you know, social media. I mean, that's the really the, you can say, it's the, it's the blossoming or the, or the explosion of meaning making activities from the mind. Mm. Right? something we call a civilization, right? So when this, at the early age of the civilization, um, just like our house, you know, it's not 
cluttered or so crowded, right? We couldn't even track, you know, right. where some of the value valuable things are because it, right. it's lying somewhere in a in a corner. Um, but at, at that stage, at the early stage, I think, you know, people lived according, to, you know, they got up according to the sunrise and then went to bed, you know, at sunset, right? So things are simple. I think it's probably very easy to concentrate on those things that most essential to their living. So a lot of that time that might be spent practicing that sort of thing, now it's easy to just pick up the smartphone and open an app and kind of just distract ourselves and... Yeah, I think at that time, maybe I still think that maybe not everybody. I think maybe even at that time, I would imagine <clears throat> that uh, the average people are still have to deal with, right? Deal with, uh, you know, their, um, you know, finding the food and so on and so forth. Um, but again, you know, maybe only a few people more... Um, spiritually alert or enlightened people, they pay more attention to the breathing technique. Um, but I think the overall, the human society is still very live at with with a certain pace, unlike ours. Mm -hmm. And so that that pace obviously plays. A role, and I think COVID and the the two years coming out of that, I think it, it did have a big impact on on that pace, and I think it did. Regularly, I hear people that that they feel like that's one of the real benefits that came out of COVID is that people realized that they could go at a much different pace; that life didn't have to be constant activity, constantly doing things. How do you think maybe our society can can leverage that in, in maybe a more um, durable way? Because I, you know, I have a feeling there's going to be this push from the economic system to get people you know, running full speed on the treadmill again and constantly doing things because that it generates money, it generates productivity, etc. Et what do you think would be kind of an, uh, an improved outcome where our society is, is more able to, like the title of, of this chapter and the translation that I read to embrace Tao more. It's, I feel it's hard. I think there's a tug of war between nature and culture. Mm -hmm. um, cultural meaning, you know, includes the economic, all kinds of economic forces. Yeah. I think if you can feel about the people, they're traveling, they're, eagerness to consume, I think the, the, the moment, the force are still there. Mm -hmm. You know, people just want to 
kind of return to the past. Um, mm-hmm. I, I mean that kind of forces way of living. Yeah, yeah, uh, their habitual uh, behaviors and tendencies. Um, but I'm not sure what's the what are the the next um, series of events from nature. I just feel like there's a tug of war here, and um, and uh, I think the it seems like nature is exercising its um I, I think in nature it seems like it, the nature is like screaming more loudly nowadays and and without a doubt i think you know i just it seems like every every year yeah there's more and more just kind of um I don't think it's just our availability to read the news around the world, but just more and more extreme weather events. I mean, even this extreme cold where, you know, you see the whole country just blasted with really cold weather in a way that we haven't seen. It It, it seems like it's one, one thing after another, but this tug of war that really... Mm-hmm. I think we can define as the struggle between the human-made economic system that just really benefits the tiniest of percentages of people. I mean, I think I, I was looking at the statistics this past week, and it's like there's 750 billionaires in the U.S., and, you know, there's 350 million people and those 750 billionaires, they own more, they own three times as much as the, the bottom half of the mm. country, the, the poorest 50% of the country the 750 billionaires have three times the wealth as, you know, 125 million people. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so, and we know that the system, it's not set up for those 125 million people who don't own anything. And this isn't like Lao Tzu's, you know, not possessing, we're talking about basic needs. So, you know, we agree not possessing doesn't mean not having your basic needs met. So there's this tension between an economic system that forces everyone to participate in a, in a way to benefit, you know, these 750 to, I think if you go to, the the top you know not just billionaires but people with like hundreds of millions of dollars maybe about 20,000 people that really own the vast majority of wealth in in this country so they're the ones that this economic system is really designed to benefit 
and everyone else, there's this tug of war to pull them into it and participate in it. Because if you don't, you're not even going to have your basic needs met. And so this tug of war between nature, Tao, and this economic system, and now that's where the fear that you were talking about in the very beginning comes in, this fear that if we don't participate in the system that's at odds with Tao, what's going to happen to us? How are we going to get our basic needs met in that tug of war? And it's fear-based. That's a good question because our civilization has evolved in such a way that, you know, it seems like all human beings are, you know, more interconnected. So in other yeah. words, maybe in, at some stage of the history, you know, as a farmer or peasants, you know, who live, you know, in the mountain, you, you, you have a certain level of self-sufficiency. Yeah. Right? Uh, and with that sufficiency, you know, some level of freedom in, in a yep. lot of ways. And yeah, today, so you know, we talked about freedom of the time, but we're really enslaved by a, a system. You know, that's ironic, too, mm -hmm. right? We talked about the longest, actually, we are like a little, you know, little um, mm, guinea pigs, you know, in a lab or something. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, so how would that happen? Well, look at the feeling, look at the behaviors of the people. I feel like people are pretty resentful nowadays they they you know they have a certain <clears throat> level of despair <coughs> excuse me and um but i don't think they they're just coping I, I i don't think that they are giving their full selves you know their you know hearts and and mind to the kind of the work as right. a part of that system. So that's another interesting thing. So eventually, what will happen? Maybe, you know, these few people, these societal elites, mm -hmm. they have to rely on AI because people are not <laughs> submissive. You know, at least right now, I think, I don't think people as human beings well, uh, there are certain people who are rule followers, I think, in the mm -hmm. society. So they will they will say, oh, you know, I have no choices, so I will just, you know, do whatever I can because I have a family to support. Mm -hmm. So these are kind of people. But I, I think there's also people of other personalities. So if they don't cooperate, they, they, they want to be a part of the system, and they are probably the most creative ones, you see. Mm -hmm. um, so they will opt out of the system, uh, pursue their own things. And uh, I guess the, you know, small number of people, those elites, in some way have to rely on AI mm -hmm. to do the kind of work. Yeah, so they're not really self-sufficient either. So even the people who really benefit from the system, 
they're also not self-sufficient. They need either AI or people working for wages to participate for them to have their lifestyle. And obviously if that ever collapsed, I think it was one, it was this really funny thing. I think someone, someone, it was on one of these like home bunker type of message boards where there's these people with lots of wealth talking about, I made this bunker and I paid. Yeah. I read about that. Yeah. And I'm Uh like, you know, 20 private security guards. But my fear is, well, if everything collapses, how do, how do I keep those 20 private security guards loyal to me and not just take, take over? And of course the answer is you're not going to, that's exactly what they're going to do. They, if if there's no system in place anymore and you've got this bunker and all these resources that you built early on, those 20 security guards don't care about you in the slightest. They are going to take over. So you don't have security with your billion dollars either. Yeah, that reminds me of the uh, in ancient time during in China, you know, the emperors, they they build the, these big tombs, right? But the builders, they have to kill them all because right. they were so afraid. So the same, you know, same fear because yeah. because you 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 think you are powerful to have all these guards, right? But these guards can attack you too. So, yep. so that it's that, and again, so the fear and lack of security, it's just funny to see how all this technology and wealth that we've created and still even the people at the very top, how insecure they are. Yeah. Yeah. I I feel like in that, in this regard, there are only two ways for humanity. One is, you know, humanity is destroyed by this fear because fear drives to, you know, another action, another action, right? It's all like to that brink of is, you know, extinction right all by fear or we evolve in such a way we understand that fear better you know we 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 start to come up with new ways of uh, living with at least uh, acknowledging and living with this fear and then create some new system or new way of living together and then maybe we have a a longer time, you know, to move around on this planet. I mean, it seems to me we are at this kind of a crossroads now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree completely. I think, you know, it, it's finding a new balance between this extreme individualism and extreme wealth at the individual level and how technology is perpetuating that to, okay, yeah, technology is can be good. It, it can help us with medicine and mm-hmm. ease the burden of our jobs and that sort of thing. But self-sufficiency is key. And, and maybe these ancient ways of living where people were taught self-sufficiency they were taught ways of 
aligning, harmonizing with nature to be self-sufficient rather than relying upon a system of technology, you just knew how to be self-sufficient in nature rather than within an artificial system. And then when all those people are near each other, the whole group then has a lot more security because you know, oh, you know, we're, we're all self-sufficient and helping each other to survive. And we're creating our own way of life where we're not dependent upon a system. We're really just connected to each other in a meaningfully, meaningful way. We're connected to nature in a meaningful way. And we're using technology not to create a, a system that separates us from each other and nature, but really as a way just to enjoy our lives more and let us have more time for our customs and traditions to share in that together. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like history um, has evolved to make that more possible than in the past because in the past uh, you know think about you know like when i read the book the you know the sapien right mm. it, you know it talks about that different tribes have to rely on storytelling to help them go beyond right yeah. to create a larger whole yeah i guess at that time like there's that. a there's a need for that, right? To uh, because to at that time, I think uh, without the, you know a lot of technology, uh, human beings in nature seem to be more vulnerable to the natural elements. Mm -hmm. So there is an imperative. Uh, there's a need, necessity, mm -hmm. to create groups in order to collaborate, right? To uh, but I feel like we are now at a point of going uh, too far with that group creating because we, we create all these infighting with a group now. It's becoming counterproductive. There's not much of space among individuals psychologically, especially psychologically, because we are all in that kind of rat race, right? So yeah. without finding ways to, um, you know, turn this trend, I feel that fear, that anxiety will uh, lead to more destructive forces among us. So with the technology we have and we're e more equipped, right? So I don't think it's, you know, giving people enough space um, and not to focus on, focusing on empire building yeah it's probably more healthy way mm -hmm. and i think people are still are able to uh survive and but naturally more spontaneously if they feel it's meaningful to connect with you and you and you they can create all these natural groups to um cope with some of the problems yeah, that um, empire building is taking possession to an extreme, the yo, yo to an extreme. Yes, yes. And what uh, Lao Tzu is saying, 
we should really be pursuing or not possessing. Or at least uh, to uh, to kind of scale down and, uh, you know, like a small village kind of a community. Yes. We, we still, it, it's almost like a reconfiguration mm-hmm. of our human species. Because right now, whether you call it the grand vision of globalization, all these things, um, it seems like we, we go too quickly and too far. And we, we need to kind of come back a little bit and to create that psychological space for every one of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, that, that way, you know, we can breathe in more gently. <laughs> Well, I, I think that's a great sentiment to end on, that we can, instead of pursuing this this empire building that's trying to create this monoculture across the globe that's squeezing everyone because people aren't happy or satisfied within it, we've got to give people space. We've got to give people psychological space and then that actually helps set up those conditions for people to be like a child to breathe easy yeah and to 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 thrive to flourish you know to to be really alive well thank you david for sharing your sentiments on this chapter chapter 10 of Tao Te Ching and I hope you enjoy the rest of your holiday today, and I hope our listeners are enjoying their day and hope to see you again next time. Same to you and the same to our listeners.